Uh, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, one of your critics, one of your reviewers, Joshua Tracy. And I, Corwin Heller. And uh, we're talking about the 1986 film Ferris Bueller's Day Off and the 2017 film Molly's Game. Uh, Corwin, do you have any, any preference on where to start? Uh, I actually don't. I don't today. Uh, I, I'm in a mood to talk about Molly's Game, so I want to start there. Okay, I'll take All right. it. Cool. So, uh, Molly's Game came out in 2017. It was uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, based off the book by Molly Bloom, starring Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, and Kevin Costner. It has one Oscar nomination, no wins. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Aaron Sorkin, um, which is about sounds about right. Uh, mm-hmm. Its estimated budget was $30 million. Its cumulative worldwide gross was $60 million. This is also a Netflix movie, so it's like, who knows how much they really made. Um, I, I always take those numbers to be like the low end. Um, the, its tagline is deal with her that's that's really dumb i get it i don't care for it but get it um yeah uh it is the true story of molly bloom an olympic class skier who ran the world's most exclusive high stakes poker game and became an fbi target uh, Corwin, this was your pick. What do you think of this film? I have such mixed feelings about this. Um, I, I guess I'll get the caveat out of the way, the little tidbit of, like, four different times throughout this movie, you know, that being said, I go into movies with as little information as I can. I just want to have a, a fresh palette, if you will. Uh, you know, I don't want to have a a biased opinion because of something I saw beforehand, unless I had already seen it or, you know, something I had heard previously. I just don't go out of my way to take in any other information about it. Um, But like four times going into Molly's game, which I had known nothing about. I was like, they are using some really fucking terrible Sorkinisms. Like they're trying to imitate Aaron Sorkin. And it's just like, these are cheesy, awful lines that just fall flat. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I watch The West Wing a lot. Like, I'm very familiar with Sorkinisms. And it was just like, this is bad. Like, the writing in this is bad. And then, like, the ending of the movie, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, is the first thing you see after it cuts to the credits. And it's like, Jesus Christ, he phoned this one in. It's still very much his writing. You can tell it a mile away. You know it's Aaron Sorkin, but it's not good Aaron Sorkin. This is not, you know, the social network. This is not the West Wing. This is this is rough. And I think that really is uh, uh, the biggest detriment to the movie. You know, there are times where it's still incredibly smart and still very much good Sorkin. There are some really good things they touch on with you know female empowerment and things like that there are some really great acting performances by um idris elba and the guy who likes little river band in uh the other guys 
but I don't like Jessica Chastain's performance. I don't like the writing as a whole. Um, and despite how cool this movie can be at times, it's just a very much a mixed bag, and I have very mixed feelings towards it. All right, I'm I'm very interested in the getting into this with you um, because I feel a lot of very similar things. I so firstly, I actually did like this movie. Um, I found it to be very interesting, very captivating, but. I found it to be captivating because it's just something I didn't know happened. I didn't know any of this shit took Same. place. Um, yeah. And I was way more interested in like the logistics of everything and the, like, like what was going on than I was with the Molly Bloom character or really any of the interpersonal relationships because it is really poorly written. Um, like, oh. like top to bottom, it's, it's bad. The dialogue is cringing. Um, the character development's kind of awful. Like, I found this movie to be... And, I, and, it, and I'm still saying this as someone who still, I still will say now and at the end of the episode, I liked this movie. Um, but really only because I liked the mood of the movie and I liked just seeing the, the, the underground poker scene kind of take shape with an understanding that, yes, this is real and not so, like, weird we did this in our backyard oceans 11 um it's it, i it feels like molly bloom was involved in the making this making of this because it is so light on her drug use that it almost might as well not be in the movie because it didn't provide anything and was wacky the ending of this movie is so bad we i'm dying to talk about it i'm blown away i yeah. thought we had a we we shot on Aaron Sorkin's film, <laughs> uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven, for having a bad ending. I'm going to annihilate this ending. I hated it. Um, it's practically the same ending. <laughs> in a lot of ways, it really is. But worse, they didn't even right. clap. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, they go light on her drug use. They also go incredibly light on the fact that she's still committed felonies. She got her case thrown out. With essentially public service, a light fine, and no other repercussions, but she was still taking kickbacks. She was still raking in money from these, literally rake, taking rakes from these tables. Yeah, like, and the problem with it is that they presented it like, uh, oh, she had to do it to preserve her business, uh, or she just could have not. <laughs> like, right. and it's like, like oh whether, well, whether you commit a felony, whether you commit a white collar felony. Um, because you have, you had to fucking feed your family, um, or because you didn't want your business to go under either way, you committed a white collar felony. Like there's no two ways about it. I don't care what fucking, uh, Bernie Madoff's intentions were. He still committed a white collar crime. And like the, the reasoning of, well, guys on wall street do it by lunchtime every day. It's like, yes. Wall Street commits a lot of crimes that doesn't make those crimes okay or lesser crimes okay. Like, oh, that is just infuriating. Granted, well, and we'll get to the trial in a bit. It was not a trial based on those crimes. It was trying to tie her to the Russian mafia, which, oh my God, it, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah. it does have the one Aaron Sorkin bit that I think it does get is like the feeling of it you you it, it 
while it lacks a lot in the writing and in my opinion a lot of the story structure elements of it it does feel like a highbrow Aaron Sorkin film a lot in just like the tone of it which is appreciated um see I I agree but I think it's a detractor which I, I think that's fair if, if that's how you read it I think that's totally fair I I because it feels so bargain bin Sorkin um I could I could perfectly understand why that would come off abrasively um you know what yeah i I don't even have any more to to intro on the rambling let's just kind of i guess get into it um jesus christ where to even start exactly it is a wild film i had no idea it was going to be this kind of movie i thought it was going to be like a dark gritty crime drama i didn't know anything i didn't read anything about it either um i i i didn't know Anybody who was in it was going to be in it. Didn't know it was written by Sorkin. I just kind of clicked on it, so I had no impression. Um, also, real quick, isn't it wild that the movie is named after the book that is used in the movie, but the events, some of the events in the movie take place after the book? Did that yes. throw you for a loop? Because that threw me for a loop at first. It didn't throw me for a loop just because I didn't know the book existed and just kind of accepted it. Another denier, and then he held up a book, the book of Molly's game, and I was like, "Wait, wait, wait! When's this happening?" I just kind of assumed it was like, "Oh, we're just going to copy and paste this because people already know it and accept it as such." Because uh, it made for a really awkward storytelling bit, because really the events of this movie are are taking place in a retelling of the book, and in the post book pre-trial part but it's like it's weird because the book parts the flashbacks of the book parts are really just catching you up on where they're at in the trial um and while it's still relatively effective it's just an awkward way of doing it because i i couldn't help but shake the fact that like I'm not I, half of what I'm learning. I wouldn't have learned from the book, and half of what I'm learning is just straight from the book. And what I'm learning that isn't in the book, like just happened four years ago. You know, like I, I found it to be just kind of awkward. I don't disagree. Looking back, that being said, it wasn't something I was worried about because I never really like. He held up a copy of the book. It said Molly's game. They don't really discuss the title of the book further. You know, it's not a topic of discussion in, you know, a larger scheme of things. So I didn't really think about it too much. I just kind of had other things I was worrying about while watching this movie. Well, and and I I guess I want to kind of jump to the ending a little bit to help make the point um, about why it felt awkward to me. Not that it really matters why it felt awkward to me in the grand scheme of things, but just to, you know, why not? Because um, if you think about what happened in between the time the book came out and when this movie ends, it's like basically nothing. All that happened was um, there was an asset forfeiture that was kind of suspect. Um, there was uh, there was a, a court hearing where she just had to enter her plea of not guilty or whatever to or or announce her representation with Idris mm-hmm. Elba. They went to the um, 
plea negotiation meetings with the prosecutors and then went to trial and she pled guilty and then they threw the case out. And none of those matter. Those are so small and they were so recent that there wasn't even... Because one of the things that makes the ending of Trial Chicago 7 not good, but at least a little bit more effective is that you get the black screen with the... And then, you know, um, Abby Hoffman did this and, and then Thomas Hayden did this. And it's like, all right, so... While this ending sucks, I can I can live a little bit in the knowledge of what happened to everybody afterwards and fill in some details and and tack this onto my mind. This movie came out like seriously, like like two years after the trial. Or like three years after the trial. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened. I was joking with Kel about it, about how chances are what Molly did right after she left this courtroom was go to Netflix to sell this movie. Like <laughs> Seriously, that's how fast it is. Think about what a two-year, three-year turnaround is. Because she says somewhere in, in those scenes that she's 35. She's 42 now. This movie came out three years ago, which means she was 38 when this when this movie came out. So that's three years. <laughs> like, that's mm-hmm. nothing. That's movie pre-production time. Like, that's nothing. And that makes it a really boring ending because literally the ending is her throwing out the case that was built up as the present time but where nothing interesting really happened, just Idris Elba being like, why didn't you do... It was just a vehicle for flashbacks when you could have just told the movie linearly and led up to the moment where she got the case thrown out instead of jumping back and forth. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Because it made no sense. Like I, I, that's, cause that, I guess that's what made it feel awkward. Is like We're living in the time post-book, but it doesn't matter. And we're doing all these flashbacks to what the movie really is. It's like they kept jumping to present time, but we're, what were we, what were we learning? What were we doing no, there? I don't know. All we were doing was watching Idris Elba be like, "Who's Player X? Give names. Why didn't you give names? Why'd you cover up for this guy? What does it matter? Seriously, what does it matter? And why couldn't that have just been told linearly? What did it do for us to do the flashbacks?" They weren't timed with anything interesting. It was I just weird. I physically shrugged and realized that you can't see that. I can feel it, though. <laughs> yeah. I felt the shrug. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin, I don't know if there were other writers involved with this, but my goodness, this was a, a weak, weak written movie. And I know we've already basically determined that but my god it is nothing short of aggravating how little did you care about her relationship with her father oh i i didn't care one iota at no point was i like ah yes she's finally making up with her father why yeah seriously why did that matter like this is not a movie about about molly bloom at least it's not an effective movie about molly bloom this is a movie about the underground gambling ring um, or circuit, which is not what this movie is about, but is by God, that's what this movie should have been about. Because Molly Bloom, the person, is not an interesting person. No. Uh, and by all means, if anything, she's a bad person. You know, she is not a good character, she's not a good person. I, I don't know why she, well, obviously, if she was involved with the making of this, that would be why, but she should not be the protagonist of this movie. No, 
No, she is absolutely not. I I mean, she was, and Kel and I were talking about this during the movie too. She was just greedy as shit and couldn't stop because she was addicted to money. At yeah. one point she had, I think they said like $4 million in the bank. Um, I know there was a scene after she had moved to New York where she said she had over $200,000 in the bank. Bitch, leave. Get a job. If That's... you're that concerned, stop mm-hmm. doing it. You could have backed out at any time. It's a weekly poker game. It's something that could happen without you if the guys really wanted it to. You seriously could have just left and the game just would have stopped. It's not like the cartel was going to come for you. In theory, it was no strings attached. And she even said, like, oh, like, I could have I could have stopped or, I, I, like, I knew I shouldn't have been doing this. But, like, oh, shit, the money was so good. And it's like, yeah, obviously the money is good. That's the whole point. Uh, just Again, it's aggravating how she is made out to be a protagonist when, by all means, terrible person. I want to talk about another clunky scene. And I'm just kind of jumping around to, to, to what sticks out in my mind. Sorry if there's less direction here than there needs to be. Uh, um, or if you have anything. I usually am not, you know, continuous or, you know, universal with the direction of my ramblings. So Hey, I'm, it works for us, you know. Uh, yeah. um, the scene where she meets with those dudes from Jersey and then gets beat up afterwards. Uh-huh. Why is that there? I assume because it happened in real life and it showed the mob connection that she was basically saying in the movie how she didn't know the mob was connected, but she clearly did. But you see, they the, the government was asking about the Russian mob. This was the Italian mob. And the this, only that time was the Italian mob that was the Italian mob. Are you sure? Yep. Because she even has she even has a throwaway line, which when she's sitting in the prosecutor's office during the plea bargain uh, scene, uh, they were she was like, I don't know what the Ita- uh, the Russian mob even looks like. They don't really announce themselves. Um, but the Italian mob, and then she kind of trails off because um, that was that was them. I fucking hate her as a character and yeah, just she everything. She absolutely I just cannot does. stand her. She literally hired a lawyer for $250,000 to not pay him, apparently, um, and also just plead guilty. Anyway, um, but like that scene was so odd because nothing came out of it. And yeah. I, I get maybe it's there to show you, hey, this is a shady business. We knew that already. What did Molly learn from it? Kind of nothing. I, I, I mean, she gets pinched like the scene afterwards because the first game she's about to head back to is the game that the FBI shows up to. Um, so it, or she doesn't get pinched right afterwards, but she flees to Colorado the scene afterwards. Um, and I don't get what that's there for. I think, I think it's there because it happens to Molly, like you said, and it's, it's there to be, you know, part of the biography of the character of the woman and the film. But we spend so little time on Molly the person, and what we get is so surface level and uninteresting that seeing her get, you know, duffed up like that just doesn't resonate, like, plot-wise, or even Mm -hmm. character-wise. Like, I I was so, it, it was so shocking to me when it just didn't matter. When she was putting on her makeup in her apartment, it was just like, and now I'm going to the next game. Like, that that's that's it. I like she 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 
uh, overdubbed a line about how, oh, my driver recommended them to me. And then she gives money to her doorman, like, oh, with them packages. And I kept waiting for that to, like, be a thing. And it just wasn't. It didn't matter. They did nothing with it. Like, she even makes a point to go back and, like, tip the door. We know you already know that the doorman was in on it. We already know that the doorman is in on it. What's that? It doesn't add anything. And granted, you know, I don't want to sit here and say, oh, every scene in every movie has to mean something. You know, there are directors that do that and do it well. It doesn't always have to be the case. Sometimes they could just be enjoyable scenes, but that was just kind of... It's when there's so many of these. It's, I don't know. It's there's There's so many little nitpicky things that wouldn't be nitpicky if the rest of this film... I I know, and there has to be a, there has to be a phrase for that, right? A phrase for what? Like when things are only noticeably bad, bad, and like only matter negatively when the rest of the film doesn't add up, or like things that don't matter when the rest is good. Yeah, because I know they're what you not mean. that big of a deal. I know what you mean. They're they're really. There has to be something cinematically that is built to have like a single phrase for for that description. Right. I don't know what it would be. Um, because and just another thing with that scene because I, I hated it. I hated it so much. So actually, two other things with that scene because I hated it. Um, this is a two and a half hour long film. If this scene, if this movie was ninety five minutes, I could go. All right, that scene was in there. Because they needed another 10 minutes to make time. Nope. Could have cut that whole scene out. Wouldn't have mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. The runtime issue um, that I always bring up. Um, secondly, I am Mr. Reads Too Far Into Everything. I have nothing for that. To, 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 to squeeze out of that. And thirdly. Why didn't she go to the hospital? Uh, she said because then they would call the police. And why didn't you want them to call the police? I don't know. I remember thinking, I don't get why she wouldn't want the police to be called. Maybe, oh, because they were saying they knew where her mom was? So? They knew where the mom lived? Their police are meant to be called for that reason. They would help her mother. She's, she's, she literally got brained by a fucking pistol. Um, like, 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 she's got, she got roughed up in her own goddamn apartment. It's very clear she's not going to make shit up. They'll send cops to her goddamn parents' place. Her mother's. My place. defense for that decision is she had a very serious concussion and probably wasn't thinking through that very clearly. And that's the only difference. But when you don't say what that is. is it, it's a, it, it becomes gambling. All right. That means you knew what you were doing was fucked up, you know? And while that shows that you're kind of more of an asshole than you've been letting on because you 
you didn't think you were doing anything wrong, you have a drug problem, and they'll get you help with with, with less harmful versions of 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 of, uh, of those narcotics, or or find ways to help you get off of them. They're 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 physicians. They don't give a fuck. And the police aren't going to be noticeable about anything. You got roughed up. You could be high as a goddamn kite. Chances are, it's 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 unless you're really wiling out, it's, not, it's going to be pretty tough to tell. Like, there's some level of her fear behind not calling the police that just saying, like, I was afraid that they'd come for my mother doesn't cover up because you know where your mother lives. Mm-hmm. Like, you can just say, hey, they also said they're going to come for my mom's. Can you go send cops to her house um, for security detail just to make sure she's okay for a while? Um, and literally, like, her connection to them is just as as stupid as it, it was presented. Yeah, my driver su- suggested some new security guys. They ended up being tied up with the mob. Um, I'm rich, so they thought they could take advantage of me. And like, like it's right. Like, you didn't, she didn't even really have to lie. Like, it, it's just a weird scene because just, I think it's I think it's also there to help build some sympathy towards her. Which did you feel any sympathy? At no point during this entire movie did I ever feel sympathy towards her. Yeah, not even a little bit, right? Maybe, maybe a scene or two, but come on, it, it not really. <sighs> no, no. Oh, Aaron Sorkin, how the mighty have fallen, or the mighty gotten lazy. Uh, I mean, he got that sweet, sweet Netflix money, so. It's where the yeah. real money is. Apparently so. Um, I don't know. What'd you think about Idris Elba and the stupid bullshit with her, with his daughter? Uh, I, I really hate how they tried to make another B storyline about him raising his daughter and all that stuff. Like, I, I don't care. I do think Idris Elba was the best part of this movie because he did have some really great monologues and really great scenes. Um, And he was far and away the most emotional aspect of this movie. He's the only one that brought emotion to this movie. Um, And his performance deserved better than what the rest of this film gave him. But yeah, the stuff with his daughter was just kind of meh. I didn't care for it. I I, I wholeheartedly agree that Idris Elba is the best part of this film because he's the best part of everything he's in. I love him. Um, and you know what the second best part of this movie was? What? Michael Sarah being like a badass mental manipulator and just a psychological powerhouse. Oh, I do want to shout out casting for that too, because for one thing, yeah, that part is hilarious and, and trippy and weird. <laughs> um, also, it's it's such a great call having the only like recognizable actor in the entire film who is in the poker games be playing an actor (laughs) well no playing an actor worked out really well because it's like i don't know who outside of um, oh i see what you mean i see what you mean outside of uh lawrence o'dowd who played the drunk um at the end uh i didn't recognize any of the poker players from anywhere else so having the the one guy playing an actor be an actor um sorry be an actor playing an actor so that he was a recognizable face really worked to this film's advantage, or really worked to those scenes' advantage. I think that that was a really good bit of casting. Yeah, um, I was just about to say, um, 
the guy who's drunk and in love with Molly, but we already mentioned Chris O'Dowd. Uh, uh, a really good poker player that goes off on a tangent and blows up, but regardless. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. That's a that's a good decision because it was so effective in uh, a, or isolating, I guess, Michael Sarah as the guy, the famous guy. Uh, that, By the way, you know, apparently... The rumor, you know, rumor word around the campfire is that, that Michael Sarah, um, his uh, character was portraying Toby Maguire. I've heard that as well, and Which, I think that's really funny. Oh my god, it's hilarious! The idea of Toby Maguire wanting to destroy people—that's and that's funny. why in Ocean's Eleven they used uh, Topher Grace because those two always get confused mixed up, and yeah. mixed up. Yeah, interesting. Really? Huh? Yeah. Wow. All right, this is basically fact now. I'm running with this. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I want to get back to the Idris Elba thing. Um, so the thing that I really, 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 really hate about the way the, the father-daughter relationship is presented in this film is that at no point does the daughter really have any agency. They are talking about her mostly in the abstract, and she is treated more like a thing that conversations circle around than she is a human child in need of parenting. Like, having a conversation about, hey, am I too tough on my kid? No one gives a shit. <laughs> like, I want that to be visible and, and practical, and I want to see how you actually interact with your daughter and how that changes based on the information. If you're going to have a father-daughter, any any parent-child relationship be featured in the film, you have to actually show it happening. Mm-hmm. They don't. Every scene that the daughter's in, she's just being shooed out of the room by Idris Elba or having like a really weird conversation with Molly Bloom. Like, right. she can't just be a thing that is discussed. Like, we are so far past that in how we talk about people women women of color in film that having her just be a discussion point was so fucking weird am i too tough on my kid show scenes of you interacting with your kid outside of just giving her homework assignments like and if that's all we're getting then yeah you're too tough on your kid or don't put the kid in the movie just don't don't like she didn't need to be there so either have her be there for an emotional element where she's going to have something to do and give you a reason to feel, which she did not, and she was strictly just used as a conversation point to talk about Molly Bloom more, uh, or don't put her in the fucking movie. She didn't need to be there. Yeah. Again, I'm sitting here agreeing with you. I got nothing to add. Also, uh, my eyes rolled so hard when Molly Bloom started quoting uh, the John Proctor monologue from uh, The Crucible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recognized it immediately. So much it of that. was just like, uh Like, there was so much of this movie that was like, oh, attempting to be intent, like intellectual, be cool, be smart for, you know, to an extent where it felt smart, even though it didn't necessarily have to be smart. And it just came off so cheesy and just so awful. Just so many scenes, that included, 
Ugh. Also, the idea that the Crucible is featured because it is about a witch hunt. This is not a witch hunt. Well, you did those crimes. Dude, yeah, not, not, and and you know we can debate the merits of what how connected Molly Bloom was to the Russian mafia and to what extent she helped foster connections or whatever it is the prosecution was looking for. The fact of the matter is she did talk to members of the Russian mafia, whether she knew they were in the Russian mafia or not. She talked to people who was in them, hosted them at her events, all that shit. That's a fact. That is not a witch hunt. <laughs> like, again, you can debate the merits of the case. It is not a witch hunt. And she is not John Proctor. Like, it comes down to the also, story. John Proctor didn't. Sorry. Drives me nuts. She pled guilty. John Proctor didn't. That was the whole fucking point. Yeah. Ugh. Um, Ugh. We're just like really shitting on this movie. Well, because I Especially hate... Especially when you opened up with this movie was good and I enjoyed this movie. I don't think yeah. you enjoyed this movie anymore. I still do. I, I, I know I'm really against it, but I maybe I need to rewatch it with all my newfound emotions on it. But like that's the thing that drove me, drove me fucking nuts about the ending is that John Proctor chose you know he was like i'm not going to say i'm a witch and denounce the witches and name other witches or whatever um because i am i am proud i'm not putting my name on that list because i am proud my name is all i have i'm not going down in history like that being some guy who's who who sacrificed who he was to appease the law um or whatever is counting as law molly bloom didn't do that Comparing her to him in that way makes no fucking sense. She wasted everyone's time after having committed felonies just to ultimately plead guilty anyway and to tarnish her name for a crime she didn't think she committed for some sense of morality we never got. Mm -hmm. It was so weird. It's a story that you can assuredly say deserves to be made into a feature film. Like you, you look at the, the from, you know, you take yourself out of the situation of like the way Molly's game is now. And you look at the, the broad strokes of what this story is, the major plot point, And you're like, Oh my God, that would make a phenomenal film. And it does. It would. But the way they chose to portray it and the way they wrote it and the way they cast it, just so many decisions into how they were going to make this film have turned it into this clusterfuck. And it it had the meat. It had the bones to be really, really good. Yeah, like despite all this, I still liked it because I think the subject matter of the film is genuinely interesting. Yeah. I I just we we have a lot of problems with a lot of the immediate things and under the skin things that make this not a great film. Um, the relationship with her dad is so fucking dumb, especially the park bench scene where he's she's ans- he's asking her questions or or answering her questions or oh. whatever. Oh my god, that was such pretentious, snobbish bullshit. Um, I. So finish up. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. The scene where she goes ice skating. Oh my God! What a cunt! I know. 
I know. Just okay. Four hundred dollar gloves for a pair of ice skates. Oh, I'm I'm divesting. Okay, pretentious, but whatever. It's your money. I don't care. The chick got a nice pair of gloves for twelve bucks. She's gonna have to pay and put it in the register at the end of the night. But just getting on the ice and immediately seeing someone like struggle up ahead, and it's like oh, I'm gonna show everyone, and then just putting everyone else around her in danger because she felt the need to just go out and prove everyone wrong. Like just the absolute mindset of, Oh, it fucking drove me up a goddamn wall. And like she crashes and takes out like three different people when she sees her dad. And then she's like, Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. You okay. Oh shit. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And it's like, why what are you trying to do like how are you trying to save face and make it seem like an apology is fitting here you're insane uh just that scene in particular just drove me up a goddamn wall oh no it was it was selfish bullshit and again what emotion were we supposed to be taking away from that because all i felt was contempt like mm-hmm. are we supposed to cuz i think in a different movie that you know her putting on skates again for the first time in a bunch of years is like supposed to give you a sense of her returning to her roots and, and then some sense of relief with getting her emotions out on the ice. And uh, because of that, that um, nostalgic connection to cold weather sports and, and you know, that type of medium, you don't get that out of this. Cause for one, they did a terrible job of connecting her skating past or sorry, a skiing past to, to where she went to literally just throwing scenes and showing her getting hurt and then not really saying anything about it once she starts her her career in um game running and also she was a fucking dick a different movie would have that scene taking place on an empty ice rink where she like collapses to the ground afterwards or some shit like that or sees her dad is the only person like he walked into the the rink at a weird time when it was empty no she did this she got chased by security ran into a, a guy helping up his kid or helping up his wife something like that um I, I forget the size of the being he helped up uh and then actually seeing her dad instead of hallucinating her dad which threw me for another loop because it was so weird Same. Same. um it was and then and then it just hard cuts to her still being at the ice rink but just outside like they wouldn't escort her or, Tell her to leave off the premises, like, and and then cutting into that bullshit pretentious scene, not acknowledging at all what just happened back there. I, 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 what, what were we supposed to get out of that? Why was that there? I don't know. I don't know. Don't know anything. I think we need oh. to wrap this movie up. We're just gonna keep shit. Yeah. On it. I don't <laughs> even know if it deserves all this shit. It's just, yeah, yeah. yeah we can go for a while. <laughs> Um, all right, final rating and review. Uh, I'm not going to give it a further review because we know how we feel. Uh, I'll give it a three. Like, it really isn't awful. It's watchable. You know, there's definitely going to be people that definitely enjoy this. But I'll do three. Yeah, I'm between two and a half and three. You gave it a three. Maybe I'll... Because... You know, I'll give it a three as well. It's on Netflix. Um, I think it's still an enjoyable movie to watch tonally and to like get a lot of that underground biz that um, is really the intriguing part of the film. Um, 
there's a lot of complaints I have. Chris O'Dowd's accent. What's happening there? <laughs> um, but I mean, you uh, can say that about any accent he's ever done. True, it but the confusing. fact that they had an Irish New Yorker in Queens talking like a Jew from Brooklyn was bizarre. I mean, why he played that role so Jewish, it, I don't understand. Um, it it like on, it honestly made me uncomfortable. Because <laughs> because didn't he wasn't the group he was playing with the Jewish and Russian mob? But his whole thing was, I'm the only Irishman they let play. Right, but uh, Irish people can still be Jewish. Uh, they can be, but I think the point was that he's not Jewish. Like he is, I think he was supposed to be like Irish through and through. Well, then uh, why else would he be there? Uh, I, I what other connection could he possibly have if he's not Russian or Jewish? That's the thing. I, I think that's why he was talking about it so so proudly. Is that he somehow? I I am going in. to argue that you are just wrong there. But at the same time, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the story or film. In I can any guarantee way. you. I can guarantee you, my friend. He was not Jewish. I don't know that man. I don't know his business. I can guarantee you, the Irishman from Queens is not Jewish. <laughs> sure, I dude. Guarantee yeah. you. Uh, I might call up Aaron Sorkin I, I would reach out to Aaron Sorkin and instead of asking him any meaningful question I could possibly any of the other things I've seen of his that I love I'm going to ask him what his fucking ethnicity is from this movie <laughs> yeah uh, but anyway it, it, it's, it's, it's a fine um that's really, I think, all there is to it. Uh, so I'll, I'll yep. settle it into the three. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. Shall we move over to Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yeah. All it. right. 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, written and directed by John Hughes, starring Matthew Broderick, Alan Ruck, and Mia Sarah, had an estimated budget. Uh, six million dollars, a cumulative worldwide gross of seventy million dollars. That is a success. Um, its tagline was "Because life is too beautiful a thing to waste." Um, yep, works very effectively. It had no Oscars nominations. It did have one Golden Globe nomination for Matthew Broderick for best performance by an actor in a motion picture, comedy, or musical. Um, it is about a high school wise guy who is determined to have a day off from school, despite what the principal thinks of that. Um, so this was my film. I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I have a lot of feelings about this movie uh, that we'll we'll certainly get into. I I think of this is a very fun movie for how introspective it, it it truly is and i think there's a lot to really like about it and i do like this movie um seen it a few times uh haven't seen it in a while so it was nice to revisit it i like this movie i think there's a lot of areas this movie comes in at how long are you an hour and 43 minutes and i genuinely think this could have been a two hour long film pretty easily um and i think that actually it's its lack of additional scenes is to its detriment. This movie has so much going on in it, all of which I think is actually interesting, that 
the only reason I don't love this movie is because it doesn't I don't I don't think for me it gets deep enough into anything to make it truly resonate the way I would want it to. Um but I really, really enjoy this and I'm I'm looking forward to to talking about it. So Corwin, what do you make of Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I've probably seen this movie two dozen times and it's one of my all time favorites. Um and the fact that you can watch this movie uh and come back with negatives to have to even say about it uh it hurts you know it, it hurts me and it hurts oh, our oh, relationship. To be fair, my only negative is that it's not long enough yeah but it's not perfect in your eyes and that's what hurts now i i mean i can't actually hold that against you or you know anyone who watches it of course you know you want to see more hoodwink or like you know random shit that goes on but I, I think it has a good length only because if it was any longer, you would start to question how all of this was even possible in a day. Um, and like, it's already stretching those truths because the amount of mileage that was added on to the car uh, in like the eight hours they possibly could have had it it just doesn't add up. Like the math does not work. They'd be driving just insurmountable speeds. Uh, and regardless, at the end of the day, I just find this to be a, a wildly enjoyable movie. Um, one of the easiest to watch movies that uh, honestly I've, I've ever watched. And it's one that is endlessly rewatchable. I, I don't have any issues with it. Like, I know we're going to sit here and have to talk about it and do this, do that. But like, I don't, I don't have any quarrels with this movie. I don't have any qualms. This is just, it's a perfect film to me and it always will be. Um, I love it. Oh, all right. I guess, uh, I guess let's get into it. So I think to make a really bizarre comparison, that this film is, in a lot of ways, similar to a movie we just did last week, One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, this is not a movie about Ferris Bueller. <laughs> this is a movie it's about... about off. It's, a, it's not even about his day off. It is a movie about Cameron. Um, much in the same way that One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest features a very larger-than-life character, um, R.P. McMurphy, as played by um, fucking Jack Nicholson, uh, but the movie's really about Chief and his progress through the film. This film features a very big, <laughs> quite literally larger-than-life Matthew Broderick, but it's really about Alan Ruck's Cameron, um, seeing as Matthew Broderick is the same guy at the end of the film as he is at the beginning of the film. Um, Cameron, however, goes through a humongous change in who he is and his outlook on his relationship with his father, and in some aspects, life itself from the beginning to the end of this film. Um, did you get that as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Cameron is the only person in this film that, you know, Ferris is the energy and Cameron is the almost introspection. You know, obviously there are points where Ferris is... <sighs> arguing about his future, arguing about 
this and that and all of these other little things that you know are going to happen with his, with his life but he is as a person and as a character in this movie living his life one minute at a time one day at a time he's just trying to make the most of it while he's there cameron is trying to figure out who he is as a person and who you know his parents wanted him to be and who Ferris is trying to get him to be and who he wants to be. And I think that's, you know, why we see him actually have that growth. And um, I, you know, I've been watching Succession on HBO and, and seeing Alan Ruck as a crazy older man is hilarious. But then immediately watching an episode of that, stopping and putting on young Cameron, you know, and young Alan Ruck, it's, it's really great to uh, see that different uh, contrast. And uh, it's just, it's great. I want to get a Gordy Howe jersey, like an old mesh Gordy Howe jersey, and just be Cameron for Halloween. I can appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I love the 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 detail of the Gordy Howe jersey. Um, for anyone, for the uninitiated, um, Gordy Howe is one of the greatest hockey players of all time. I'm he's he's Mister Hockey, literally. Um, he played forever. He played for like twenty five years. Um, he is the face of Detroit hockey and he is, he is, especially when this film came out in 1986, probably the most hated person in Chicago. Uh, and this film takes place in Chicago. Really? The people in this film are Chicago sports fans. Uh, and one could assume that so is Cameron's father. So why is Cor- Cor- Corbin? Why is Cameron wearing a Gordy Howe jersey? Well, we can assume it's to piss off his fucking dad, um, and that awesome. is a great little, uh, little, little nugget there. Um, ugh, so appreciated. Yeah, Ferris, and that's what I think makes this trio in particular such a good vehicle for storytelling in the in what this film wants to accomplish because. Ferris is very sincere, but also has a lot going for him and doesn't feel the lows that Cameron feels. Cameron mm-hmm. feels a lot of lows and is very introspective, but um, which brings a lot of weight at, to the film, which I think is to its benefit. So that it's not just another goofball comedy. You know, this isn't a different and significantly worse version of this film would basically just be Caddyshack. Um, and it's not. Like this movie has a lot going on for it. And then Sloan brings a lot of good things in because I I think Sl- Sloan and Cameron are good representatives of the future. Ferris is good. You don't have to worry about him as much. Sloan is what Ferris sees in his future and what Cameron sees as unattainable for his future. You know? Um just a really nice girl, good-looking person, probably going to go places. Yeah, and and that's what Ferris is aiming for. It's what he's got in his sights. It's what he, it's within reach for him. And Cameron just doesn't see it as being possible. Um, and she's also a really like fun person to be around, as you see in the film, which makes her like having her. You be know how like people always. Effective. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
you know how people always are like, oh, like, who was the character, you know, like, who was the actress, who basically was, like, your awakening, like, when you were hitting puberty, like, who was the person that made you, like, oh, girls, that's a thing. For me, it was Mia Sarah in this movie. Very fair. I don't know. Um, But I do love that connection of who they are and who they're trying to be being that representation. I've always loved, uh, you know, the connection of pissing off his father, which is why he wears the Gordy Howe Jersey. I also like it as the commentary on family health. You know, you see Cameron's family. You don't see either one of Cameron's parents in any capacity throughout the film. Yeah. You don't know what they look like. You don't know who they are. Ferris's parents, you know, partially because, you know, Ferris is the main character of the film. You know who they are. They have multiple scenes. They're all interacting. They're all happy. They both come home and, you know, they care about Ferris. They check in on him throughout the day when they think he's homesick. Cameron is actually homesick and gets nothing from his parents. We don't even know if they call or if they know he left the house. And you kind of see it as, okay, this is why these two seemingly very similar guys who are very close friends are so wildly different, which is briefly touched upon in the movie. One has a very healthy home life and the other does not. Um, And we see again, that contrast between the two. Yeah, you're right. The the family dynamic thing is, is, is very, very powerful. Uh, Again, you see it in the way these characters have shaped out uh, with, Ferris being very outgoing, very successful in his conversation and, and in his confidence and Cameron just not being. Um, yeah, and, and the, I think also the lack of seeing his, his parents, especially his father, uh, being so effective to make him the more effective boogeyman. You know, it's way easier to fear something that you don't see on screen. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's also, it really works in that way that you don't see him too. Um, and I, I like the fact that part of... I think what Ferris is trying to show Cameron is really just to, it's going to sound so fucking lame, but just to like have fun and to just kind of go for it and to enjoy life where you can get it, which leads to like goofy scenes that don't bring anything plot wise to the movie, like the twist and shout scene. Twist but, and shout. But first off, it's super fun. And part of the point of the movie is Ferris showing to Cameron, look, man, like, you can be this guy like i'm just going for it like you could just go for it too look how much fun i'm having this could be you um which makes those scenes that again don't really contribute much in terms of plot and just seem like they're goofball fun scenes for the sake of it actually have a a, a deeper meaning below it that more enjoyable and that's why i love this movie so much is you know it's still a wildly meanings with, you know, intense, uh, um, but it's still just you're the twins, which I don't think is ever implicitly stated, explicitly stated. I am forgetting the difference between the two words now. Um, but essentially, you know, she is an academically focused, uh, straight and arrow kind of student kind of person where Ferris is the, you know, 
living life by the seat of his pants, just doing things for the hell of it. And it's the similar relationship between the two where it's almost uh, a jealousy. It's almost a, you know, I wish I could be like that. I wish that was me. Maybe it could be me. And we kind of see the similar breakout with her character. I forget her actress, but I know her character's name is Jeannie. Um, when she meets a uh, future co-star in, um, what's it called? Uh, Red Dawn, uh, Charlie Sheen. Oh, there you go. I'm pretty sure this is Charlie Sheen's like, first feature film. I, uh, I don't think you're wrong. I know Wall Street was the year after this in 87. Um, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with his filmography, nor do I truly care. Uh, I, I, I think, I think Cameron and whatever the fuck his sister's name, Jeannie, um, mm-hmm. I think they're there to be two sides of the same coin. I, I think, I think you, you kind of said this agree. already. Yeah. That like. Just not in those eloquent terms. Yeah. Cause you know, Cameron sees, sees Ferris and he's upset at himself that he can't be that and, and, um, internalizes that and Jeannie sees Ferris and is mad at that she can't be that, but she she can't process that emotionally or intellectually yet because it she hasn't been pointed out to her. Sometimes those things just need to be expressed to you, which is what Charlie Sheen's character does. Um, and so she ex- externalizes her anger by just being fucking mad at her brother. And then after the Charlie Sheen scene with that revelation, that like, hey, why do you care? Like, it seems like you wish you could get away with that shit too. Stop being mad at your brother. She cools down a lot. And the the two of them kind of converge to the point of like, yeah, no, I should just be better for me and not worry about my friend slash brother's success in, in whatever part of life I'm failing at and just try to improve there myself or or chill out and, and be along on the, that, that ride as well, um, which I think those two lines complement each other very well. I agree. I, I, all right. We must now talk about my complaint. This movie needs to be longer. This The scenes where they kind of get into the purpose of the film, which is Cameron's change and his worries about the future and his this existential dread. You know, like the, there was a passing line. Um, I might not have even been that passing. I might have been more focused on than I'm giving it credit for. But where uh, Cameron and Sloan are talking and Sloan was like, what are you going to do after college? Or what are you going to do after graduation? And Cameron was like, I'm going to go to college. And Sloan was like, what are you going to do there? And Cameron was like, I have no idea. Um, and then I think he smiled, and then we changed scenes. Mm-hmm. That scene should be longer. And I, because the sentiment is on its face, it's right there. It's that Cameron is just moving with the beat of the drum. Um, he is going on the path that he's probably being pushed down by his father. Um, he's going down the path that is approved by society. All those types of things. I want to hear more about that, though. I I want to I want to get more into where this fear is. And I know a lot of it's directed at his dad, but I want to hear him say it. You know, and we get a lot of it at at in that that one scene at the end. We'll get there in a minute with the with the car. But those scenes where Cameron talks very briefly about where his you know demure nature comes from. I want more of those scenes or the ones we have to just have more length to them. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't blame you for wanting that, but I feel like we get all of the information we need to get in the scenes we're given. And I don't necessarily think they need to be longer in order to be any more effective. Um, I I can see why you want them to be longer, but again, I like I just I don't think it would necessarily be that impactful to have the scenes be thirty seconds longer, a minute longer, with a few extra lines of dialogue. So I will I will say two things. One, I do not disagree that this complaint for me might be very, very Josh-specific and not as um, generalized as our complaints about Molly's game were, where it's like, no, you're wrong. I might just be saying this movie should conform to how I want it because I want it that way, which is fair. I do that. Um, I will, however, back up my claim by saying I think it would make the the scene where Cameron comes to that acceptance um, after lashing out of his father's car and inadvertently driving it off a cliff. um, I think it would make that a little, that turn he has a little bit more impactful if we're given more of that dissatisfaction, Jesus, um, and anger with his, him and his father's relationship um, and how it's affected this kind of listless nature he has earlier in the film so that that payoff later in the film just has a little bit more to it. And again, that might be me trying to make the film more how I would make it, which, again, I do. But that's why I think that. Mm-hmm. Again, like when you, when you put it that way, I, I can't help but say, no, that would be nice. Um, I, you know, it, it's hard to find that, that middle ground where you're getting both those increased interactions, those increased emotions and expression towards their relationship without, you know, making things either a little convoluted or just a little muddled or just too long. You know, like we complain about Molly's game being two and a half hours and, Again, it didn't feel like the longest two and a half hour movie I've ever watched, but at the same time, it it definitely easily could have been cut down further. I'm very content with not, you know, counting seconds in this film because of how effective it all ended up being in the end. Okay. Um... Fuck, I had something I was going to say. God damn it. Shit. Oh, I remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the other thing I think, to go against my own point, because I like to be fair, um, is that this film does a phenomenal job of balancing uh, the highs with the lows. And another possible detriment of adding more time to the scenes that really discuss the lows is making the film too bottom-heavy in terms of the emotion. Because um, like like we've been saying, this film does a really, really good job of showing you, hey, here's how life, how great and happy life could be. We're singing and dancing in the streets of Chicago. And then it's also like, oh, fuck, I have to like talk to my dad about how much he sucks after I just ran his car through a goddamn glass display case. Like, <laughs> it, 
and it does a really good job. And 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 I could understand why also they wouldn't want to spend too much time laying around the negative uh, to avoid tipping the balance of of feeling towards the negative. But yeah. So anyway, arguing with myself. Uh, As I, have a point, I, do. I have a point I want to add before we wrap things up. Lay it on me, guy. Edward Rooney's ego is the same size as Ferris's confidence. That's a great point. Yeah, what do you think he's there for? Just comic relief? Uh, he's the man that they're fighting. He is the the physical embodiment of what they are rebelling against, you know? Yeah, but they don't they don't interact with him in this movie almost at all. Right, but who would the antagonist of the film be otherwise? And Cameron's dad. It showed, right, but he's not in the movie. No, but I don't think he needs like, to. They be. don't interact nearly at all, but Cameron's dad isn't even a character. You know, Ferris doesn't have anyone pushing against him other than Edward Rooney. Like, every one of the characters in this, you know, are trying to kind of herd Ferris in the right direction, you know, in his life. But Edward Rooney is the... Edward R. Rooney is the only one here that is actively pushing against Ferris. I... And you, I, I think you just need that kind of uh, relationship for this to work. Otherwise, it's just kids skipping school and having fun. No, I get it. I, I think I would quantify it in two ways. One, he is comic relief. Um, he is, he is, he's the slapstick side of the comedy that I think um, John Hughes does oh so well. Hmm. Um, and I think he's also... So there was there was a part in, in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest that we talked about, again, I think that was last week, where um, Cheswick starts shouting about how he wants his cigarettes, and Jack Nicholson starts trying to calm him down, and then the whole ward gets riled up, and Jack Nicholson tries to calm him down because he realizes he can't get out without them, um, or without good behavior, and he, but he started a cultural revolution, and that has now gone on. Um, it, it's now self-determined. It didn't, it didn't need him to continue, and he can't rein it in. Mm-hmm. I think this is Rooney showing because he, he he actively says in the beginnings like something like uh I don't want to I can't have a school full of fifteen hundred Ferris Bueller's and I think I think he's there to some extent to just try to be the man yes and against Ferris Bueller yes but more so he's against cultural change um and and characters and people which he cannot control and he is there to try to stem, to nip some level of societal change, nip it in the butt so that it can't continue. And his hilarious failings should, are, I think, in some ways supposed to parallel the the failings we see in real life. You, you can't stop change. It is inevitable. Um, but that might also be Josh reading too far into this, as is a moment we get every episode so who knows <laughs> and at the very end of the day it is a principal of a high school of 1500 students leaving and driving to chicago to chase after one of them because he doesn't like him that much did he go to chicago i thought he just went to ferris's house no he like goes to uh 
I thought he went to physically to like Chicago, and that's like the uh, the arcade they went to. But that mm. I guess could have just been a local arcade. I don't remember. I don't know. That. I don't think it's ever really expressed. It, uh, it really doesn't. It, yeah, but it, it it's certainly upsetting to see him smash a, a pot potted plant over a dog's head, or at least to have it be presumed that he did that. That's upsetting. Uh, so, uh, fuck you, Rooney. Dumb bitch. Yeah. All right. Uh, final ratings and reviews. And Rooney. And Rooney's okay. I like sure. him. Sure. Yeah. Shall we do? Uh, shall we do our ratings and reviews and get out of here? Yeah. All right. Um. It's it's one of the it's one of the quintessential movies of the eighties, man. Um. It it's a perfect encapsulation of of a light hearted rebellion in your in your your teen years, the cusp of manhood. Um. Uh, it, it's the thing that John Hughes is so famous for, for, for capturing um, this coming of age type of story. You get it in a, in a lot of his different works. And I think this is one of this is, it is by far the largest focus of the film. And I think comes off as one of the most sincere ones that he had done. Um, oh, all of them are sincere, but cause I'm thinking like breakfast club too, but uh, breakfast clubs, better you're gonna hate me for saying that um Mm -hmm. but he does it so so sincerely and this is such a fun movie in addition to how deep it ends up being um i i really thoroughly enjoy it i'm gonna give it a four out of out of five um for no reason other than that's what felt right uh okay i accept uh i'm giving it a five because i do think it's the perfect balance between Easy to watch, endlessly enjoyable comedy, uh, excellent writing, excellent acting by all of those characters, um, and also being something that's a little bit more introspective. And, uh, you know, it is, I think, uh, one of the best, if not the best, like coming of age films, which, you know, having seen this two dozen times in my life, you know, it is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, Of course, I will have those sentimental feelings towards it which are going to affect my score but it's a it's a five out of five for me right on um shall we pick next week's films oh frick uh yes but i haven't not picked mine yet so you can go ahead oh you have your list though right i do so it won't take me too long all right cool um so i'm actually between a couple movies and i need your help uh deciding because one of them is a documentary, but we haven't done a documentary on the show before, and I'm wondering how you'd feel about that. I am totally for it. All right, then I'm going to pick the recently released documentary on um, Amazon Prime Video about Frank Zappa called Zappa. Um, Corbin, are you a Zappa fan? I know of Frank Zappa. I don't know Frank Zappa. Perfect. That's exactly what I'm curious about seeing in regards to our discussion. Um, I, because I'm I'm a big Zappa fan. I I I am enthralled with the mystery of Zappa. Um, so I'm excited to watch this as someone who has some some experience in the Zappa sphere, and I'm very interested in how you approach it. Um, contrary to me, as someone that really has no prior background in the field, um, so no like emotional attachment to it the way that I do and seeing how you think of it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So the, so the 2020 
documentary on Amazon Prime called simply Zappa. That's my pick. Uh, I'm going to go with a film that I know we have both already seen. Actually, oh, here we go. It has come out on Blu-ray, so I can officially watch this with confidence. Uh, I'm going to go 1917. Oh, perfect. It's also on Showtime. Uh, I'm going to watch it in 4K because I feel like that movie deserves it. Don't yeah, it's so good. 4K version. I, you know, it's, I'm so glad you picked this because it like just hit Showtime this week. Um, and Kel and I were talking about rewatching it, and now we have the perfect excuse. So I am so glad you picked this. Uh, yeah. How many, have you seen it? Did you see it in theaters? I did. Yeah. Did we see it together? No. I saw it I, multiple times. I saw it. Actually, did we see it together? I think we, we did. Because I, yeah. I think we both saw it multiple times. I think Kel and I saw it, and then you and I saw it, and then you went like with your dad? Or with I Ethan? I, with, I think I went with a, a lady. I think I went with okay. Okay. Yeah, but I because I think we both ended up seeing it a couple times. So yeah, I think we did also watch it together. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean that's gonna be so weird because I had watched it last year because Cal and I were trying to watch as many of the best picture nominees as we could in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we like can't do that. That's so weird. It's gonna be a weird Oscar season. Right. I mean, I did the same thing. So 2019, I I kept a list i was basically going to theaters and watching as many new released films as i could watch because i wanted to see all of the oscar nominations so i wanted to see all of the best and i really was looking forward to doing that again this year and well that's not gonna happen uh so yeah i mean i think it was my second best film of last year uh no it was my third uh i don't know but regardless um i'm very excited to watch this again because it's been it's been since its release since it was in theaters yeah same so it's been like about a year for each of us this will be this will be good it'll be very good I'm looking which forward is to ridiculous it. to think because we haven't seen a lot of these movies in multiple years some a decade some never and it's like oh I'm so excited to see this finally after a year after 11 long months <laughs> all right perfect perfect so that's uh 2020s um zappa and 20 i guess 19s um 1917 definitely um, are- uh definitely the most recent film episode we're gonna have the the newest we've had a couple 2020 picks right but never both together you know oh yeah that's a good point i think you're right I think the combined age of these was definitely um, the youngest. All right, cool. Um, all right, then if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. And if you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicing the big screen at gmail.com. And uh, until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Bye.